1600 KIVA, BQ.FM, I'm Eddie Erg on The Rock of Talk with me, Jeffrey Candelaria. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria for a Saturday afternoon. As always, glad to have him here in the Kiva, doing the things that only Jeffrey can. And it's an explosive power hour, as he refers to it. And we certainly appreciate him and his advertisers uh, that he brings along with him to our radio station. And the best way to support them is to support this listenership and call them directly Anytime you hear their commercials, Jeff, take it away. Thank you, Mr. Eddie Aragon, for producing the show every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. We call it Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, and we try to bring an enlightened uh, topic and content to our listenership every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. Please tell your friends to listen to Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria and all the programming here on Kiva 1600 AM. Don't forget to download the Rock of Talk app on your smartphone. So for the next hour or so, we are going to talk about the business of wine. And uh, with a friend of mine and a business associate, I've known Sandra and her family for many, many years. I, By the way, I've known Chris and, and his father for probably about 30 years because I worked at the Hispano Chamber of Commerce. So Sandra Pacheco, a little bit about her. She's got a seven-page biography <laughs> here. She's got so much experience and acumen in the world of wine. She is the national sales director for D.H. Lacombe's Family Vineyards slash St. Clair Brands. Uh, she's uh, started in the wining industry in 2004. Currently, her role as national sales director, she is developing a national and international presence for winery products in independent accounts, in regional chain accounts, and national and international chain accounts. She was responsible for establishing wine placement in national chain accounts in 48 states where wines are currently sold. Uh, there's so much more to add here, but let me uh, highlight a couple of other accomplishments. Uh, in addition, ideas and new marketing advertising opportunities for her company. Uh, in the last few years, she has worked closely with a winery and production team to develop the packaging, coordinate distribution, including product and distributor compliance. Well, there's a lot to this, Sandra. Uh, Sandra's educational experience includes a master's degree in organizational management, a bachelor's degree in communication with a minor in professional writing. In addition, she is a total quality wine management for service certified level one person and a wine sommelier. And she is uh, currently successfully completed the wine exec- executive program at uh, UC Davis. I mean, I could go on and on, but Sandra, yeah, that, 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 that is an impressive, you know, uh, biography related to or resume related to the world of wine. Congratulations on all your accomplishments. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, yeah, that I, I didn't realize I did all that, but I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, just being a sommelier, let's start with that. And then I want to talk about the distinction be, between Lacombe's versus St. Clair, because I think there's a little confusion. But what is a sommelier? Because that's a word that gets thrown around when Sometimes we go to a restaurant and, you know, the head waiter says, would you like to talk to a sommelier? You know? Right, right. <laughs> well, uh, and, and uh, a sommelier is, is the person that has the experience and the education with wines. Now, you can be a level one sommelier like I am, or you, there's a master level. So it's just like anything else. Like you start off with a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree and you yep. work yourself up to a Ph.D. And it's the same thing with... Uh, wine education. So sure. I'm a level one. I, I, I really am just uh, at my beginning stages, but I feel like the experience that I've gained um, in all the years that I've worked in the wine industry kind of just fits perfectly in with the formal training. You're listening to Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. My guest is, and by the way, Sandra and her family live here in New Mexico. They're in New Mexico. You know, they've got uh, a pedigree here in New Mexico for, for hundreds of years. She's the National Sales Director for D.H. Lacombe's Family Vineyards and St. Clair Brands. But she understands wine uh, from a business perspective, from actually a recreational perspective, and, and, and the science and physics of wine. Because, you know, wine can be a bit intimidating. It can be a little confounding because somebody says, I'm going to have a Malbec, I'm going to have a Pinot Noir, I'm going to have a Cabernet, I'm going to have a Port Wine or whatever. I mean, there's just so much to know in this thing called the world of wine. So for the next hour, we're going to really dissect as many aspects of it as we can. But let's start with this. In our marketplace here in the Albuquerque metro area, 
you have Lacombe's, St. Clair Winery, and it seems like there's a little confusion. Can you clarify the distinctions, please? Sure. So the Lescombe family has owned the winery, um, you know, since the early 1980s, okay? Um, they purchased the winery, and at that point it was called St. Clair Winery. So they kept that name, obviously. But in the last few years, we have really felt like it was important to um, pay homage to the family, and we changed the name to Lescombe. So the D.H. Lescombe Winery and Bistro, our, our uh, winery name is now Lescombe Family Vineyards. So we have put the Lescombe family at the top. Um, we didn't sell out. You know, we still produce the St. Clair brands. Um, nothing's changed with those. It really is just the change in name and paying homage to the Lescombe family who, you know, who started this this fun business here in New Mexico in the eight, early 80s. And, you know, it's important that our listeners recognize this this concept of and behavior of buying local, because we talk about that all the time. And what I really enjoy about Lacombe's, Saint, you know, St. Clair, that, those brands, and the restaurant there on Rio Grande and near I-40, right? Yes, I-40 and Rio Grande. Is you serve local New Mexico wines. And and that's really you know it's it's a fun experience to to be able to order a delicious wine with your meal and buy a couple of bottles to take home. But these are New Mexico wines. So talk a little bit about the vineyards, where's its presence, and, and some of the some of the aspects of the of the local New Mexico wine industry and its success. Okay, absolutely, and thank you for recognizing the importance of food and wine pairing. Um, you know, a lot of people ask us why we went into the restaurant business. Uh, you know, we are a winery, and we are a winery first. And thank you also for recognizing that we only pour local New Mexico wines in our restaurant. Um, on top of that, we only pour local New Mexico wines that we produce. So we have a captive audience um, at our restaurant, but we want to introduce them into um, that experience of food and wine and that was the way that we could do it, is that we could open these restaurants. And by the way, this is just one of many others that we have. We have a restaurant, uh, D.H. Lescombe Winery and Bistro in Las Cruces. Same thing in Alamogordo, our newest one. And then we have Hervé Wine Bar up in Santa Fe. So we have, we have tried to capture the entire state yeah. uh, so that we could introduce people, as you said, to uh, local New Mexico wines. Yeah. And this was our way to do it. So our winery is located in Demi, New Mexico. We're on about a 15-acre um, site. We do all our production there. Uh, we have a tasting room there. For the most part, that's where everything happens. Now, our uh, vineyard is located about 45 miles west of Demi, uh, near Lordsburg. And we currently have about 220 acres planted. Wow. Yeah, we're super excited. We keep adding a little little bit more uh, every year. We are producing about 35 different varietals uh, in that one vineyard. So super exciting. And, you know, sometimes um, we experiment with different vines and um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, it's it's just a, you got to get out there, put it in, plant it, hope it works, hope it, it grows some beautiful fruit. Uh, if not, you move on to the next. My guest, Sandra Pacheco, uh National Sales Director for D.H. Lacombe's Family Vineyards slash St. Clair Brands. Jeffrey Candler, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler. So for our listeners, Deming is the southwest part of New Mexico, right? It's out there near perhaps uh, maybe it's west of Las Cruces, kind of near Silver City-ish, maybe somewhere in there. It's a little south of Silver City. So we're kind of right in the middle between the Arizona border and Las Cruces, if you were going to think about that. Sure. And again, coming back to New Mexico wines, and we're going to talk about the history of New Mexico wines as well later in the show, but wine is a little bit like coffee. If I understand latitude around the globe, there's certain latitudes where certain grapes tend to be more uh, conducive to certain kind of varietals, which end up being a certain kind of kind of uh, wine in the end. So obviously New Mexico is inside that latitude where you're, you're growing certain grapes that end up producing certain kinds of good wine. And so is that is that a 
somewhat of a fair assessment? Like it is, Jeffrey, and, and and I am thankful to our forefather winemakers yeah. uh, in New Mexico because they're the ones that really did um, a lot of the work in terms of finding locations where grapes, where vineyard grew well. Yeah. And they experimented from the northern part of the state to the southern part of the state, and obviously the southern part of the state just seems to be a better place to grow, not that the northern part of the state can't grow, um, but we are able, because of the, the hot days and cool nights, um, we're able to grow uh, a multitude of varietals, as I had mentioned, 35 different varietals. Uh, and what I mean for by varietals, for maybe some of your listeners that don't know, that would be the grape. So it, that would be your Cabernet Sauvignon, your Merlot, your Chardonnay. That's what I mean by varietals. Yeah. And, and again, conditions are so important to like... Coffee, for example, Sumatra, you know, those kinds of things. But in your world of wine, conditions also are so important to the kind of varietal or the kind of grape that's going to be robust and successful. So you're saying in New Mexico, you have more extreme conditions of cold and hot. And so that's good for certain grapes is what I heard you say. It is. Yes. I mean, that's perfect for a lot of varietals is to have that those hot, hot temperatures and then cool down at night. Yeah. Um, it just it, it, it produces better fruit. Not that we can grow absolutely every varietal here in the state of New Mexico. That's why you see certain regions are popular for, for certain wines. Yeah. Pinot Noir. Um, you know, we grow a great Pinot Noir. We didn't do so well with our Zinfandel. Okay. You know, there's just different varietals that work better in the vineyards here in New Mexico. So why do I think Pinot Noir and I think Oregon? Is that... Why am I thinking that? Does that, that make any sense? It does. And really, that is the probably one of the, the best Pinot Noir growing um, locations in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, you know, they again, they have a very, the Pinot Noir grape is very finicky and kind of has its own desires to be the best. And those conditions in Oregon just seem to, to be perfect Sounds for like that. Sounds like my wife. Maybe I should rename her Pinot Noir. <laughs> there you go. Just kidding, Nancy. <laughs> Great talk with Jeffrey Candelari with National Sales Director Sandra Pacheco from D.H. Lacombe's Family Vineyards and St. Clair Brands. So, and again, just to talk about Portland briefly, again, it's conditions then. Is that what you're saying? Conditions, conditions totally, and North Mother Nature. And Mother Nature, okay. So that's extremely important when our listeners are thinking about varietals and wine. And ultimately, where, where, where were their genesis? You know, where were they born, right? So... Those are really important questions that a sommelier would, would probably understand, right? For sure. When you're For ordering sure. a, a good bottle of wine, ask about its, its, its variety. So what is a – so you mentioned varietals as grape, the grape. What is vintage? Because I, I was asked to ask you vintage. So vintage <laughs> is the year, okay? okay? So um, it's the year that it came out of the vineyard. Okay. So, for instance, some, you know, some wines are aged. Uh, Cabernet, typically an aged varietal. And we could be um, three years out, right? Um, that's when, when it was harvested from the vineyard, but it sat in barrels three years ago. So what was that, 2018? Yeah. 2018. So that would be its vintage. Okay. So that may not show up on the shelf until 2021. Okay. But the vintage is actually the year that the, the fruit was harvested from the vineyard. So we, we have heard this this saying, like an aphor, aphorism or an axiom, you know, it ages like wine. But that's not true for all wines, meaning a, a maybe it's a port, I don't know, you're, you tell me, or you're the expert, Sandra. Does it matter that a Zinfandel is 20 years old versus a Cabernet? In other words, that saying ages with wine, and that's a good thing. The longer the, the you know the the wine has been sitting or whatever, and we'll talk about bottle positioning too. But what does that relate to? That saying, you know, age is good for wine. Is it more the red wines or the white wines? Or talk a little bit about that. Okay, so that it, that really goes back more toward the red wines. Okay, and that's an old saying. Um, you have to think about um, you know wine's been made for thousands of years, right? Right. Uh, it has always been uh, stored for the most part. And again, people typically think that if a 
bottle is or or wine is just stored for a, a length of time, it's going to be better. And you're right. That's not necessarily true for all varietals. Um, you know, there are white wines, for instance. Those typically do not age well. Okay. Um, so those will be sold immediately. But the red wines, definitely a lot of them you want to age. And those will age in barrels. They'll age in steel tanks. Uh, there's different ways that we age the wines. So a Cabernet would be a kind of wine that that that, that saying would apply to. Absolutely. And if someone were to go out this weekend and buy, you know, a bottle of, of Cabernet, you know, a, a good bottle, 50 bucks, 60 bucks. I mean, obviously you can buy, you know, Chateau Lafitte 58 for $28,000 a bottle. But anyway, should they store it in terms of a certain kind of temperature, a, a good red wine? And and should it be positioned like the, the top facing down or the other reverse position? Because I, you know, when you buy a wine uh, structure, sure, the, the bottle fits in a certain way, correct? It does. And, and is, is that meaningful? It is. So what that what that does is it allows the cork to stay moist. Okay. Okay. So you can imagine a cork if it dries out, right, is going to um, kind of shrink. Yeah. So you don't want that to happen to some a bottle that you have aging, right? You want the, the cork to be as tight as possible in that bottle, not to allow any air into the into the wine, because that, that immediately um, will start to activate a, a whole different situation with your wine. Because so, ultimately, wine is chemistry, right? It is, totally. It's yeah. chemistry. And it was really surprising to me, I, that now that you mentioned that, when I got into the industry, I was really surprised at how many... Um, Engineers like from Sandia National Labs, uh, people of, of you know kind of that industry were in this came to this industry. Wow! And it was because of that. It is chemistry. Yeah. Totally. Well, and it's a lot of mathematics. I mean, you have to calculate. You know, like you said earlier, temperature, temperature variation, probably latitude. I would imagine how high you are, or excuse me, latitude, longitude, even altitude. Probably makes a difference. For sure. Because New Mexico tends to be a desert state, so we're a little higher above sea level than other places. So, Well, I mean, even even a hill, um, Jeffrey, can make a difference. You know, you get uh, uh, some microclimates in those areas. So you you could get a whole different taste from, wow. a, from a grape than you would on flat. Yeah. Just and, on flat And land. let's talk about, and we probably could have started this way, but uh, my mind goes from one place to another. But ultimately, I cover all aspects of the wine industry, I promise you. Again, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelier is my guest, Sandra Pacheco, and she is the National Sales Director for D.H. Lacone's Family Vineyards and St. Clair Brands. So lots of folks don't recognize that that Oñate and some of the others that were here, the Spaniards that came here, remember that uh, Coronado was here in 1540, and he himself uh, was practicing some Catholic you know, ritual, but ultimately, the wine industry started in Mexico not so much as a profiteering entrepreneurial experience, but it was related to religion and Catholicism, right? Absolutely. Because it was part of the Eucharist. And so talk about how that Catholicism and the Spaniards' presence 450 years ago actually brought the wine industry to New Mexico. It is so interesting, and it is so... Um I take pride in that New Mexico has such a long-standing history uh, in the winemaking field. So, like you said, uh, Jeffrey, you know the 1600s were played a big part in establishing the wine industry-ish in New Mexico. Um, we did have the Spaniards come up to New Mexico, and of course, uh, Catholicism was uh, was the religion. Um, part of that, of course, is wine. Yeah. And this was something that um, prompted the wine industry in New Mexico. But there were a lot of ups and downs through uh, history with that, which is really, really interesting. Um, you know, they went back and forth with Spain uh, for a long time. Of course, the Spaniards felt they made the best wines, and really we needed to just bring the wine on, on ships from Spain. Yeah. But you know that created problems in sure. terms of timing and you know how do you how do you ship it that kind of thing even the vessels themselves right the bottles yes. i mean you you can't just make like back in that time frame I'll order 28 cases of you know 
Cabernet Sauvignon for our Eucharistic experience. I mean, you didn't even have those kind of manufacturing. No, they were, capacity. you know, they were coming in in big uh, ceramic they, pots. Wow. You know, it was really. It was, then they lose half of it, of course, wow. because of the the moving around. That and then kind the of temperature thing. variation, probably too. For sure. Wow. For sure. So it it was interesting that it started there, and then of course it led to. Well, we can't keep doing it that way, right? We're going to have to figure something out. Yeah. Um, and and they started to plant vines. Um, here in New Mexico, and saw that, you know, again, they experimented with locations, that kind of thing. Where were some of the first vines, vineyards planted in New Mexico? So those were in the Socorro area. Okay. So San Antonio, yes, uh, we're all familiar with San Antonio, New yeah. Mexico, for other things like Great Burgers. Yeah, the, the Owl Cafe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was around that area that the first, vineyard, that the first uh, vines were planted. Wow. And again... Even today, you still see vines in that area. Um, okay. There's a couple of, of wineries that are still producing in that area. But anywhere from like the Socorro area south seems to be the best. Interesting. But that's where they, that's where they started. Um, what happened then is they produced for 40 years, around 40 years, really well. And then they, the Native Americans kind of uh, revolted. Yeah. Um, there were many Spaniards killed, many uh, Native Americans killed. 1690. Yep. And it was a time that, you know, uh, for the wine industry, just kind of went quiet. Yeah. Well, uh, for 12 years at least, because yeah. the Spaniards were displaced into most of, mostly El Paso for between 1680 and 1692. Exactly. As I recall. And in 1692 is when vines were planted again wow. in New Mexico. So lots of history, and then you you know you move into the 1700s, and uh, winery vineyards really expanded during those those years. Okay. Um, they didn't do so well uh, at that point. You know, people were trying different areas again, and Mother Nature, all of that were you know were was proving either successful or unsuccessful. Yeah. Um, so it was a, a little bit of a so turbulent with, time. I want to I want to ask this question because I'm, I'm fascinated by the wine industry and and just kind of history of New Mexico in general. Again, my, uh, straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria every Saturday from one to two p.m. on 1600 Kiva AM. Please tell your friends. Santa Pacheco, she's the national sales director for D H Lacombe's Family Vineyards and Saint Clair Brands. She's an expert in the business of wine, the history of wine, the physics of wine, all of it. But when we're talking about growing wine 350 years, 400 years ago by the Spaniards, are we talking about the Franciscans that came with the Spaniards that were in charge of some of that? Or was it the families like the Pachecos, the Condolades, the Luceros that were doing it? Or was it the military or all the above? It, at that point, it was the Spaniards, um, Jeffrey. Uh, you know, there. Again, you come with a little bit of an elitist attitude where wine's concerned when you're coming from, obviously, from Europe. Well, a kingdom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So th uh, they really felt like they were the experts. Yeah. Now, not to say that there were not families involved. And, of course, uh, many of the, the vineyard workers, of course, were local. Yeah. Uh, but they were all, for the most part, overseen um, you know, by, by those that, that came here. Yeah. Because um, it's not as simple as just planting some grape seeds and, you know, watering a couple times, and here we are, right? It's probably a very it's complicated experience, right? It or, absolutely or, or, is. Or discipline, I guess. It is. And, you know, we, we fail to sometimes remember that our good wines come, start at the vineyard, and it's all about the farmers, right, that are, that are growing at the vineyard. Yeah. So that's, that's the most important piece, and sometimes we just think, oh, we got a bottle. Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, we forget that it all starts with a little grape. And at that time, again, we just talked about how originally wine was brought here to be part of the Eucharistics, the Eucharist, which is part of a protocol inside the, the Mass, the Catholic Mass. And that's why it was important to continue to grow wine for that, that, you know, that experience, that religious ceremonial experience. Probably Mass was was conducted here probably every day, but particularly on Sundays, of course. But what kinds of grapes or varietals at that time were part of the Mass experience? Is there a history about that? Well, it all really started with the Mission Grape. Um, that's what it's called, and that oh, is still okay. grown in the state today. It's not as prevalent as it was obviously then, 
but that was really the only varietal um, that was that was planted in New Mexico those early years. And the mission grape, the the mission varietal, ultimately manifests into what kind of a wine? Is it more sweet? Of a, it's a, a sweet, sweeter. Um, you know. Th- like a member, member's red? Almost? Hey, there, there you go. We can compare it. Absolutely. Like our number one selling St. Clair wine, member's red. Very similar, I guess it could be, uh, to, a mission, to, to a mission grape okay. style wine. So it was a sweet red that huh. was part of the Eucharistic experience 400 years ago. Correct. And high in alcohol content. And, <laughs> and, and imagine, um, you know, we, they had to preserve it for a long, long periods of time, not like yeah. we can now. Um, so they it, they were super high in alcohol content. Wow! And I have a fun fact for you that I that I came across was that they would not even allow a drop of water into the wine at that time that was being used as a sacrament. Yeah. Um, because they they saw it as a sin. Interesting. In that, uh, who would have ever thought? You know, when I went to Catholic school for twelve years, I went to St. Charles, and I remember getting Eucharist. You know, and I'm seventh grade or whatever and somewhere around that period i remember the wine changed because they would dip the wine the host into the the wine host into the wine Mm -hmm. it tasted so good as a kid you know (laughs) and you could you could taste the you could taste the complexity of it the sweetness of it the some of the alcohol and then later maybe when i'm in ninth or tenth grade they were allowing us to drink from the chalice do you remember how all all that changed but the the point I'm making is I remember the priests not mixing so much water, you know, for it's, his for his uh, Eucharistic wine experience during the mass. Right. So right. Next, next time you're at a Catholic mass, everybody, watch how much the priest mixes water or does not. And and I I'm not trying to be flippant about the Eucharist experience. I'm just saying it's an interesting behavioral proclivity. I and guess. the way it's evolved, you yeah, know. Right. Um, Things that often change uh, with the Eucharist and kind of how that's done, and yeah. it, it, it wine just plays such an important part to that. It, it does. I just remember how it tasted so good. Yeah, <laughs> the little I, dipping I, of the. I wanted toast. I wanted to drink some. Uh, what kind of varietals are successful in New Mexico, uh, and what kinds are generally not? So um, we have found that the the Cabernet Sauvignon does very well here, um, especially in the southern part of the state, uh, as does Chenin Blanc, which is a white varietal, uh, does absolutely fabulous here. And just the taste is just phenomenal. And when you say fabulous, are we talking about competing with other wines around the globe and doing well? Or are we just saying it's just a good wine in a regional sense. No. I would say, especially with our wines, I would say that they, and, and, and many others in New Mexico, I don't want to discount anybody, um, these these compete nationally and internationally. Wow. We have a St. Clair Rosé, uh, actually a D.H. Lascombe Rosé, that took a top award in, at a international competition. Wow. So we are producing wines that are... Um, internationally recognized and what i'd like to share with your your you know your your um, listeners listeners sorry um is that they have to we are locally supported 100 percent. but what we have to get around is the california piece and california makes better wines not the case and i want to encourage your listeners to to get out and try some more new mexico wines you know, we often heard in the past, oh, New Mexico wines, that's all sweet stuff, you know, not any good. I ask you to, your listeners, to give it another try. Taste the New Mexico wines that are being made now uh, because they are nationally and internationally recognized yeah. wines. Is it fair to, for me to presume that during the last 20, maybe 30 years, the industry in New Mexico, the wine industry, really became more sophisticated, more nationally recognized, internationally recognized, or has it always been the case over the last 50, 60, 100 years that that's been the case? Or was there some particular push, entrepreneurial push, uh, industry push in New Mexico to be 
extremely successful as we are? Because it seems like it's more of a recent phenomenon, or is that is that is that an incorrect supposition? No, I think you're absolutely right. And let me share with you my thoughts on that. Um, in the early late seventies, early eighties, we started to see an influx of uh, European winemakers, wine growers come into the state of New Mexico. Gruet comes to mind. Gruet, uh, the Lescombe family, yeah. uh, they all came in together. You know, there was a, a, a family or a, a group of Swiss investors that invested in um, vineyards in southern New Mexico. So we saw a really strong European influence in uh, the winemaking in New Mexico. And I really feel like they're the ones that brought some some long uh, generational experience, winemaking, wine growing experience, and resources. to the state and yeah. resources. And it's are they? Is it fair to assume Gruet? I'm, I'm again. I'm surmising here. Gruet, Les Combes, are they are they French? Is that a French? they are French? Okay, yep. both of them. Je ne sais quoi. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, th- so they came in together around the same time, and they worked hard together. And it's interesting to me because we think about the Gruet family now, we think about the Lescombe family now, and the success that they've had over the last thirty years. But you gotta, you gotta remember these folks came into this state with, you know, little knowledge of the U.S. Um, with their families in tow. They they were just, uh, you know wine growers at that point yeah. for the most part it's not this elegant picture they just came in here you know swooped in and uh they brought all their you know their their uh masses of people it really was just those families that's interesting uh, that came here and not again i don't want to take away from other wine growers and winemakers in new mexico because yeah. there are others that have done extremely well of course and again france everybody probably knows Perion, he was a monk. Uh, that's an interesting little story. You you know the the story. He was you know trying to figure out a a way to preserve the the, the wine. So he invented the bubbly wine, right? And he figured out some process. So champagne was invented in a place near Champagne, France. But it was really a guy named Don Perion who was a monk, again for religious purposes, that invented champagne as we know it. Right. Came up with the tradition. Um, of of making, you know, a sparkling wine, a, a champagne wine. Sparkling wine. Uh, it, 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 there's just so many nuances yeah. and so many stories. And so that brings me to my next kind of segue to our topic today. Again, straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. My guest is longtime friend and business colleague, uh, Sandra Pacheco, National Sales Director for D.H. Lacombe's Family Vineyards slash St. Clair Brands. A lot of times... I remember, uh, you know, even though I was fairly well-educated, I came from South Broadway. I remember my senior year, I dated my then-girlfriend, beautiful Lebanese woman, by the way, and we went to the Crystal Room, and I had no idea how to order wine at all. I had never really been around wine, you know, growing up. My grandfather, he didn't really drink much, but occasionally he would drink Ham's beer. You oh know? boy! So, uh, but it's not just me. Lots of folks sometimes feel a bit intimidated in the presence of a sophisticated experience like dinner with other people in sure. your midst, and somebody presents a cork to you, which again he did. You know, and I didn't know what to do with it. But anyway, the intimidation of wine has probably gone away over the last ten or twenty years. I think all of our population across the country has grown a little bit more aware of wines and you know the on the spectrum of wines those kind of thing but you being in the industry is that something that you still deal with this sense that it's kind of an elite you know experience kind of a sophisticated aristocracy kind of thing the intimidation of wine is what i'm trying to ask sure is that still a factor it is jeffrey um it just comes along with with wine. I mean, that that's what people think most of the time. I personally am trying to do everything that I can to change that. I have, all, you know, when people ask me questions about wine, um, you know, what should I be drinking? What, what do you recommend? My opinion to everybody is, first of all, try different wines, but find wine, a wine you like. Yeah. If it's a sweet wine, sure. you know, 
have a sweet wine. Why yeah. should you not enjoy something that 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 you like? Sure. Um, you don't have to. Uh, you don't. You don't have to like a super dry, whatever. Um, you just have to drink a wine that that you like to drink and pair it with what you want to pair. Yeah. Um, we need to move away from that elitist uh, feeling around wine. Yeah. You know, we got to get comfortable. We yeah. got. We have got to to share um, all the beautiful wines with everybody so that they all find a favorite. Yeah, because there is a little snobbery with with some in some corners of of aristocracy and wine. Sure, you know, and that's there's true of everything though. You know, I Absolutely. drive a Porsche, I have a Rolex watch, whatever it might be. There's always that kind of elitism with brands because wines are brands too, right? For sure, you can say. This is a Claret, you know, circa 1958, and it's extremely impressive. The bottle's worth $800. I mean, there is a little aristotic, ar- aristocratic snobbery with that. Sure. But to your point, go back to the basics. Whatever you like, like it, you know? And by the way, and I, and I want you to talk about this too, if you want to drink, you know, a red wine with fish, go ahead. Go you know? for it. And if you want to have a, a white wine with meat, go ahead. And I think that's what part of your mission is, is to try to just let folks enjoy wine for exactly. what it is and pair it with what you, what you wish, right? For sure. And you should start out, again, with something that, that you enjoy. And can you, you know, kind of educate and, and develop your palate? Absolutely. Um, but that takes time. You know, you do have to start with something that, that you feel comfortable with. And even if you want to get to another level, um, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. And and that's what what I think is really important in our industry it, it, with with Lescombe Family Vineyards is we make a wine for every consumer. Yeah. And we're working really hard to do that. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, my guest for the next uh, 25 minutes or so, is Sandra Pacheco, National Sales Director for D.H. Lacombe's Family Vineyards and St. Clair Brands. There are certain things that we should do, all of us, to to really maximize or optimize the wine experience. I took a wine class. So, for example, there are certain kinds of glasses that you probably should use to let the wine breathe better, those kinds of things. So even the configuration of the glass, sometimes it is important, even holding the wine with it with a stem and right. not not the the, the bowl, bo- the bowl mm-hmm. because you don't want to whoever you is affect the temperature of the wine given certain kinds of wines. So there are certain kind of protocols we should follow. That doesn't mean we're being aristocratically snobbish. There's a reason it's, for it. There's a there's the physics of enjoying wine, right? So exactly. talk so, a little bit about some of those little protocols. Sure. So uh you know People tend to hold a glass by its bowl. I mean, that's just a natural way of holding a a, a glass, right? Um, when you're thinking about a red wine in there, you have to imagine the temperature of your hand against that wine sure. and what that is actually doing to the wine. Because, yeah. you know, wine is forever changing. Um, that is for sure. And to, to have the optimal um, experience again there are so many things you have to do. A white wine, a, a champagne or a sparkling wine, of course you want a thin um, rimmed, thin tall glass. Yeah. You know, uh, I can't think of the name like right a, now. Like a more vertical kind of. Right, a, right. And that's for the bubbles. Yeah. You know, that's for the bubbles to be able to rise because yeah. that's the way that that, that works. Um, a white wine, again, you don't want to hold it by the bowl because you're going you're gonna to do something to the temperature. Yeah. And you want to enjoy your wines at the temperature that they should be uh, poured. Yeah. For sure. So you hold it by the stem because it does affect the temperature. It does. Which may affect the optimizing experience of that wine that you paid for, right? So simple things like that. The other thing that, that that I learned in this little class is when you're sampling wine, there's a way to do that too, and you're not trying to show off. But whoever, I hate saying you, but whoever right, you right, is. right. So when you when you sample wine, you 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 appreciate the bouquet, which which is the the olfactory part or the smell, right? Correct. The bouquet. So the first thing we do is, I remember, you kind of swish it around. So talk about the protocol of tasting wine, swishing sure. it around the bouquet, some of that. 
Of course. And, of course, the swishing in the glass, what, what that does is it's just opening up the wine to um, oxygen. Yeah. And, of course, that changes everything. Like I said, you know, everything affects wine. Um, so, of course, when you're going to swish the, the, the glass around a little bit, you're going to want to kind of, you know, put some action in there, uh, get a little bit of, of oxygen in there so that you can re- so that the wine really does breathe. Yeah. Um, that's when you're going to get, you know, everything on the nose. Of yeah. course, is going to come at that point, and then when you taste, of course, your 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 tongue, your palate has so many different areas: yeah. you know, sweet sensory, a sour sensory, um, salt sensory. I mean, th- there's just so many areas of uh, in your palate that right. affect the taste of wine. So you definitely want to make sure that it hits every part of your palate, sure. um, so that you can get the full effect. And you got to notice um, what it, what you're tasting when you're when you're first tasting it, and what the finish tastes like. Yeah. Um, so there, it, it is complex, it, but it's so fun. It is. Um, when you learn, you know, all the different areas. And you may yourself not even know, you know what I mean, until sure. you start to do it. Well, that's why we, we started with wine as there's physics. It's chemistry. I mean, it really is chemical. Well, all food is chemistry. I, I watch uh, barbecue shows and, and food-making shows. I don't know how to cook anything myself, but... I I enjoy the chemistry of food preparation because really, if if one really thinks about whether it's wine making or beer making or bourbon making or, you know, making a good barbecue experience, it's always physics, temperature and chemistry. For sure. You know, so it's just so much fun to think about it on that basis, I think. Yeah. And I just wanted to bring up now that you mentioned, you know, just kind of the chemistry of food. We also produce the Hatch Chili Wines, and not a lot of people are familiar that um, or that D.H. Lescombe or Lescombe Family Vineyards is the producer of the Hatch Chili brand, um, Hatch Chili Wine brand, but we are. And I have had people in Texas, I have a gentleman that's a chef in Texas, that did a whole recipe using the Hatch Green Chili in marinating a steak. And it was just so interesting from his perspective sure, as well sure. how he could maybe he wouldn't drink the wine uh, necessarily, but he found a way to incorporate it into his food. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's with everything. Sure, you know. Well, I know that some master barbecue chefs use a little whiskey, a little wine in certain kinds of you know flavoring of the steak and or the sauce itself. So there's again, it is another example of, of chemical integration, if you will. Um, I also want to, as we begin to conclude, I think we have about 15 more minutes or so, the principles of the Lacombe's family. I don't know that we touched on that, but I think it's important that we recognize some of the principles there that, that make up the, the, the Lacombe's family. I appreciate that. Um, yes, so Hervé Lacombe, um, again, you know, we have a, a wine bar in Santa Fe, uh, his namesake. Um, he is I can't even put it in words what a kind and humble man he is. And he was the one that, you know, that came here with nothing, his family, of course, um, but really came into a, a country that he knew nothing about and decided to settle in southern New Mexico um, and bring his talents. And it wasn't all beautiful. You know, I hear stories of when they used to sell their wines out of a, a old school bus that they renovated. Yeah. You know, that's how, uh, you know, going out to the wine festivals was how they first started to market the wines. Um, so Hervé is still with us. He and his wife, Danielle, who passed a few years ago, uh, are the ones that started the, the winery here in New Mexico. They have two sons, Florent and uh, Emmanuel. Emmanuel oversees the vineyard, and Florent oversees the day-to-day operations. He's now the president of the company. So they're still very active. Um, Hervé is still active as he can be in the company, but now Florent and uh, Emmanuel are basically the ones that run the company, Um, and they're doing just an awesome job. So what are some of the wines at Lacombe's that are successful from an entrepreneurial perspective? Which, Which ones sell well? locally and maybe nationally and, and so on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So let me let me just make sure that your listeners understand um, that we produce multiple brands, okay? So D.H. Lescombe 
is one brand. St. Clair is another brand. Uh, Blue Teal, which a lot of your listeners will probably remember, that was one of our first brands. Sure. Um, we produced Blue Teal. Uh, the Hatch Chili Wines, as I mentioned. And a real biggie for me is our Soleil Mimosa product. Uh, Soleil Mimosa is a national brand. So this is a brand that is in 48 different states. Thanks um, to you, a lot well, of your efforts. Right? Uh, it, it's been a group effort for sure. Yeah. Uh, but we're producing Soleil Mimosa. We do private label mimosa as well for some, some really big re- retailers here in the U.S. Um, so we produce multiple brands. And I think I, I don't know if I mentioned the Vinos de los Muertos brand. So we have a, we have a number of brands that fall under our umbrella. Yeah. But it is all produced um, in the same winery. Our wineries food grade certified. That's another thing that we have been really successful at um, is policing ourselves. We want to make sure that we're doing everything right in the winemaking process. And we go through an annual audit every year, obviously, um, you know, to to ensure that we are following processes um, that make great wines. Well, the integrity of the process. Absolutely. And also probably in keeping with tradition, the traditions of winemaking as well, which for is sure. also important because there's an integrity for that as well. Absolutely. And it, 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 we have a, a female winemaker um, at the winery that just does phenomenal. And she is a person that started with the winery, you know, years ago yeah. and kind of worked her way up. And now she's, you know, she's the lead winemaker. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari. Thank you, Eddie Otagon, for producing the show. Every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m., 1600 Kiva AM. Tell your friends to listen to the show and content here on 1600 AM of Kiva. Uh, as we again begin to conclude, the remind our listeners that New Mexico, because we tend to be sometimes, and I'm pretty critical of New Mexico in, in the fact that we don't make a lot of things. We don't manufacture a lot of things. But think about our green chili industry. Uh, the beer industry is doing really well. But the wine industry, we have a presence in 48 states thanks to you and your team. So you can be in any, any of the contiguous 48 states and order a New Mexico wine. So we are exporting product all over, this, all over our contiguous United States. Absolutely, and we've been doing so since 2011. So it's not like it was just a year ago, yeah. two years ago. It's been some time. Now, not all our brands are available nationally, but the Soleil Mimosa, which we have, in my opinion, perfected. Um, and again, what this product is is a convenient pre-packed, Mimosa, so you're not having to buy your juice in your and, and, and remind folks as to what a mimosa is. So a mimosa, a cocktail, what you would imagine it being would be a sparkling wine and a juice, okay. typically orange juice. Uh, that's how most people make their mimosas. But we produce a classic orange, a pomegranate, a mango, and a pineapple. So we have gotten creative. Uh, in terms of what we what we call our mimosas, um, or, or even putting varieties to those, which okay. is people have just fallen in love with this product. We just repack it, relaunched it with a new package, absolutely beautiful. So anytime that you have friend, friends that are asking you about wines for, from New Mexico, I hope you'll share uh, obviously the Soleil Mimosa in other states. And, uh, of course, get out and try some of our great wines. Great here. talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. There's so much to explore in the realm of wine and wine making and wine production and wine tasting and enjoying wine. So on the spectrum of wine, and for imagine our listeners, the spectrum of wine on the left side being the sweeter wines and maybe on the right, the, the drier wines. So you would have on the left, Port wines or dessert wines generally, aren't they? Or, or dessert the, wines? The sweeter wines, yes, are on the on the far on the far spectrum left. of the left. Yep. And so, kind of walk through that spectrum for our listeners. The the, the port sweeter wines, maybe a Riesling, a Pinot, maybe a Malbec, and then gra- graduate to the the Cabernets. Kind of just walk us through from the left side to the right side of that spectrum of wine, from sweet to to dry, so we sure. can all get a sense. And then mention your. Your our New Mexico brands inside that 
that conversation. Okay. Is that okay? Absolutely. So uh, I don't know that I mentioned this before, but we produce uh, St. Clair Membrish Red, which is the number one selling New Mexico wine, um, and actually number one selling wine in New Mexico. Wow. So this this wine, um, you know, outsells national and international brands. So First of all, I want to say thank you to our loyal consumers, sure. um, you know, who really support and I'm one our of brands. Them. <laughs> thank you. Um, but anyway, that might be a, a wine that you start with. You know, that would be on the sweeter style of wine. Yeah. Um, I would say that an emerging uh, consumer would start at that point um, with something sweet. Now, dessert wines, you know, you talked and, a little bit about that. And when you serve that. the member threads, should it be served at temperature or do you need to refrigerate you need to, it? You need to chill it just a bit. Okay, chill it. Yes. Yeah. So any red or, or I'm sorry, any sweet wine, you want to you wanna chill just a bit. Okay. Uh, whether red or white. You know, white you want a little ch- uh, more chilled. Uh, but the, the red wines, the sweet red wines, always taste better slightly chilled. Got it. So absolutely. So some of the um, the dessert wines that we produce, Malvasia Bianca, and this is a varietal that not a lot of people are familiar with. They probably see it on the shelves and wonder, you know, what the heck is that? It's a what white, it? it's a white wine, uh, but it is phenomenal. And again, if you're looking for a fabulous sweet dessert wine, that would be one, um, of course. Toward that left side of the spectrum. Malvasia Bianca. Malvasia Bianca. Then you would move to probably on the white side, um, a Riesling, a Gewürztraminer, um, something, again, that's on, fairly on the sweet side. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, you'd probably move to a Pinot Noir, so uh, Pinot so Grigio. The, the Riesling grape, is that, a, is that a German grape? Is that a German word? It Riesling? is. Okay. Riesling is a German varietal. Okay. Um, but it's now grown across I the world. You. I got you. It's like. Bourbon is a county in Kentucky, but other people can make bourbon. Right. Okay. Right. I don't want, I, I, I'm sorry I interrupted you. That's okay, okay. So continue to graduate up that spectrum. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to talk about the whites right now. So um, from that, say, Riesling or Gewürztraminer, you'd probably move it up to like a Pinot Grigio or a um, Chenin Blanc, like I had mentioned. Okay. Those are still somewhat kind of semi-sweet, but not real. You know, they graduated from... From the Riesling or Gewürztraminer, okay. okay? Should they be served chilled still? Absolutely. Okay. All whites. All, All whites. whites should All be whites. served chilled. There, from there, you'd probably move to a Chardonnay. Okay. Um, you know, and that's typically your driest white yeah. would be a Chardonnay. On the red side. So if we started with Membrous Red, for yeah. instance, maybe we'd move up to a... And Membrous Red is a blend, okay? And that's probably where you want to start is with a blend just so you start to get the feel for the flavors. Yeah. Um, from when there, you say, when you say blend various grapes, various grapes, so not just one genre of grape. Got it. Exactly. Okay. Then you'd probably move to what I what our product would be would be a nativo, uh, and that's a semi sweet. So you're you're always going to want to just graduate slowly. You're not going to want to go from a super sweet to a dry. Yeah. Because um, you you often hear people say, oh, that's bitter. I don't like the taste. Yeah. You have to Incre- educate your in- palate. In- incremental. Uh, you you would do it incrementally, not leaping. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. So then maybe from uh, what I consider our our nativo being a semi sweet blend, um, maybe moving to um, just a two varietal blend, and and maybe it's a like we have a cab's in. That's kind of in the middle. It's okay. a semi dry, okay. uh, but it kind of graduates up from there. Then you can start to, you know, to move up to a Merlot, a Cab Sauv, um, and then once you really get established, of course, you're wa- you're going to want to try some of the premium varietals and Petit Verdot, uh, Petit, Petit Syrah. Uh, we do a beautiful blend called Mouved that's just fabulous. And that's more on the right side in your it mind is. of the that's Th- a so that drier. would be the the dry okay. Petit Verdot. Where do the Pinot Noirs? place on the spectrum so they would probably be um middle i would say because they're very light light there's not a lot of body uh in a in a pinot noir yeah Uh, it's more a light style red uh and people who love pinot noir love pinot noir you know and And that's my favorite red more i guess you'd say sophisticated one i just adore a good pinot noir I don't, maybe I just didn't get a sophisticated enough palate being born with, but 
the Cabernets are just not my thing. Jeffrey, drink what you like. Yeah, no, no, I'm yeah. not. I'm just saying everyone's palate gravitates to a certain kind of wine flavoring. For sure. And uh, so so I was wondering about the Pinot, so it's in the middle. I got you. Did yeah. you mention Malbec? Did we talk about the Malbec? Yeah, Malbec I, I kind of consider maybe just a step up from Pinot Noir. Okay. Um, you know, it's it's you can still get a lot of boldness with a Malbec, uh, but for instance, it's not as bold as say a Cabernet Franc yeah. or a uh, Petit Syrah. Um, you know, those are going to be, I mean, just heavy, heavy wines, uh, full of body and full of flavor. And you know what I really appreciate about the St. Clair brand and the Lascombe's brand? Because I buy your wine all the time. I just do. Thank you. And uh, buy it at Smith's or I just go to the restaurant. And it's not expensive. Relatively speaking, like the Mimbus Red, as I remember, it's like 12 bucks a bottle, whatever. I mean, that's a pretty, it's a really world-class, sweet, blend wine from New Mexico. I'm supporting the local economy, and it's, you know, less than $15 a bottle. And that's what we want to do, Jeffrey. I mean, that is our whole mission is to provide consumers with a great product that is, um, that's affordable. Yeah. You know, we're we're not going to claim that our wines need to be $45 a bottle. You know, we we want people to drink our wines. Yeah. And we want to make it affordable for them to do Straight so. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelari, my guest for the next couple of minutes, is Sandra Pacheco. She is the uh, National Sales Director for D.H. Lacombe's Family Vineyards and St. Clair Brands. Um, where does wine stack up relative to beer and liquor sales nationally? Do you have any sense of that? Is it is it holding its own or doing well? Is it prospering, continuing to prosper? It has, um, I think it has reduced in popularity with the introduction of craft brewery, craft brews, as well as spirits. I mean, spirits will always be, um, you know, up, up toward the top. Yeah. Um, but because the, the, the craft brewers have done so well in introducing a new style of, of brew, it has taken away a little bit from the wine production, um, or the wine sales. Uh, however, you know, we are all top three, um, and I think it will always be that way. And we keep introducing just, you know, like I said, new blends, new um, even varietals that, that uh, we hope people will gravitate toward. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just so you know, we also team up here in New Mexico with both Marble Brewery and Safe House Distillery. Yeah. And we have a great program grow, going this month of September um, that's ultimately benefits Roadrunner Food Bank. So we're asking people to to please look for the Tap Into New Mexico craft program out there and support not only your locally crafted products, but also benefits our hungry New Mexico And by the way, congratulations on the recent uh, wine uh, fiesta festival. uh I was there on Monday, (laughs) so, you know. Thank you. My wife was driving, so... Well, I, I was driving well, remember, to enjoy yeah, the wine. And I want to remind your listeners, I mean, this is opportunity to come out and try all New Mexico wines. Yeah. That's all that's out there are New Mexico wines. Now we're not going to have another one, unfortunately, until uh, spring until of next May. year. Yeah. yeah, if you missed it. But uh, we hope you get out there and we hope you continue. So I think we have, us. what, a couple of minutes, uh, Eddie? Uh, one minute. So you want to kind of wrap up here? Any final thoughts? We have a minute. Straight talk, Jeffrey Candler with Sandra Pacheco. Any concluding thoughts, Sandra? I just again want to thank um, the, the the residents of New Mexico for supporting local. Uh, I cannot tell you how loyal um, the New Mexico consumers are to our brands. Uh, I, I always want to express to to consumers if there's anything that we could do differently that you contact us and let us know. There's something you'd like to see. We always like to hear from the consumers. Well, Sandra, it's been a delight, and uh, you're you're so well versed in the world of wine in New Mexico, especially. So, thank you again, Sandra Pacheco. Thank you, Eddie Aragon, for producing the show. This is Jeffrey Candelaria. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Thank you, Jeffrey.